Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today's program is in response to a listener comment on one of our news stories. We're going to talk about the use of antibiotics in uh, beef production and meat production. Uh, In response to a recent story, a listener writes in that the uh, premise of the story that he heard, this is Steve, uh, is a straw man, he says. Steve says people don't buy antibiotic-free meat because they think it's better for their health. They buy it because it's better for the environment. It's better for the future of the human species. The overuse of antibiotics by the meat industry causes those drugs to lose their effectiveness in fighting human disease. Second, Steve says that the implication was that antibiotics are principally used to help sick animals recover. Steve says, totally bogus. Antibiotics are used wholesale in the meat industry on virtually every animal in large doses because they cause animals to fatten up very quickly. We're going to respond to this, talk about antibiotic use in meat production, following the news. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about antibiotic use in uh, meat production on the program today. And uh, this program is a deeper dive in response to a recent story uh, from our news department. And we got a response from uh, Steve in uh, Beaver Dam, Arizona, uh, who responded to the program thusly. He says the entire premise of the piece is a straw man. People don't buy antibiotic-free meat because they think it's better for their health. They buy it because it's better for the environment. It's better for the future of the human species. The overuse of antibiotics by the meat industry causes those drugs to lose their effectiveness in fighting human disease. Second, Steve goes on to say, the implication of the story was that antibiotics are principally used to help sick animals recover. He says that's bogus. Antibiotics, says Steve, are used wholesale in the meat industry on virtually every animal in large doses because they cause animals to fatten up very quickly. So thanks for that response, Steve. And uh, we're going to do a deeper dive uh, in the better part of the hour that we have today on this important uh, subject. Um, according to the Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future, more than 70% of antibiotics sold in the U.S. are for food production animals. And uh, the danger, both in uh, food production and uh, with humans, of course, uh, we have a tendency, I think, a lot of humans to go to the doctor and uh, just want antibiotics, even if they're uh, not effective on what we have. Uh, so every time we use antibiotics, some bacteria survive. The danger can, as we know, be superbugs, bacteria that are resistant to antibiotics. And uh, we're going to bring in uh, now Dan Thompson, who is Jones Professor of Production Medicine and Epidemiology at Kansas State uh, University. He's Doctor of Veterinary Medicine. Uh, Professor uh, Thompson, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Appreciate taking the time. We bring in Matt Mulvey as well, who's a professor in the Department of Pathology at uh, University of Utah Health. Uh, He joins us from uh, KCBW Studios in Salt Lake City. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Good morning. And Jessica Brown, assistant professor in that same uh, Department of Pathology at the University of Utah, uh, joins us as well from KCBW. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, we appreciate you all taking the time to uh, be with us. Sounds like we've got a little echo from my uh, microphone. Hopefully we can solve that. Uh, I want to start with uh, with you, Professor uh, Thompson. Um, uh, I've been reading about the rules for antibiotic use in, uh, in meat production animals. What are the current rules and guidelines? Well, that's a, that's a pretty open-ended question. You know, when we, the thing that I think most people need to understand is that antibiotic uh, use in food animals is is done at a, a extremely low level and I think that we need to understand that we we do not use antibiotics it's against the law and no la- antibiotics are labeled nor do we do it to improve performance or gain of animals um, the only reasons that antibiotics can be utilized in food producing animals or any animals is that would be the case is for the control and treatment of disease. And when we think about uh, what we have to do to be able to utilize those products in farm animals, the first thing that has to be established is what we call a veterinary client-patient relationship. And that veterinary client-patient relationship means that the veterinarian uh, has been on the farm, that the veterinarian has knowledge and, and understanding of the production systems, has seen the animals, has examined the the animals, and at that point in time, they feel that they have comfortable knowledge to have what they call a veterinary client-patient relationship, otherwise known as a VCPR. Once they have that, 
they then can write a prescription for the antibiotics to be used on that farm, and they have to be uh, available for follow-up uh, care if the if there would be an adverse reaction or if the animals do not respond to the, the therapies. The second part of a veterinary client-patient relationship is that the client, the farmer, has to agree to use the products in the manner in which the veterinarian prescribed. So there are two parts to a veterinary client-patient relationship. One, the veterinarian has, it's no different than human medicine, the veterinarian has uh, an understanding of the, the farm and the patient's they have the ability to follow up on the case of an adverse reaction, and then the client agrees to utilize the products in the manner in which the veterinarian prescribes. So once those are utilized, then there are, there are label directions on the antibiotics that are, that are utilized in food animals. And, and so the dose, the route of administration, and the duration of therapy are all outlined on the label in the prescription. The other thing that is very important that is utilized with these types of products is that we will see um, what we have a, called a withdrawal time. And the withdrawal time that is listed on the antibiotic is a time from when the animal is treated until the uh, antibiotic is cleared from the the uh, body so that the animal is then safe for slaughter. So the FDA is the the Food and Drug Administration is the is the regulating body that that approves the antibiotics. That then once those are approved and we have a veterinary client patient relationship, we use them per the label directions. And the FDA also does the extended safety studies to make sure that the withdrawal times that are on the label are what would be considered uh, enough time to make sure that we don't have antibiotic residues. So those are kind of the big ones when it comes to laws and, and regulations. Obviously, there are things that we'll probably discuss today pertaining to uh, residues and, and resistance of antibiotics in, in uh, slaughter animals. But uh, that would be where we'd be at when it comes to laws and regulations. One of the things I think is important to understand that when we talk, and I, and I work as a consultant for many of the, the restaurant groups here in the U.S., uh, work as a, 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 for many of the different philanthropic organizations to address the antibiotic resistance issue from food animals. One thing that we need to understand is that we are very blessed in the United States, and all of us, whether you're directly involved in ag or not, through your taxes, have paid to develop a multi-billion dollar system for food safety when it comes to antibiotic resistance and antibiotic residue avoidance. And basically, we have the system in the United States for the production of safe and, and wholesome and nutritious and yet affordable food uh, relative to what we see in, in some of our third world or developing nations, which they don't have the infrastructure of an FDA. They don't have the infrastructure of a USDA. They don't have withdrawal times. Uh, they don't have, have uh, uh, sanitary slaughter facilities. They don't have veterinarians. And I think that one of the things that we get off base you know, as I work for the OIE, which is the World Animal Health Organization, 75% of the member countries of the 175 countries that are involved in the OIE are third world or developing nations, and they don't have this infrastructure in place. So, so while we criticize or, or uh, downplay what the U.S. Uh, FDA, USDA, and many, many people and generations before us uh, through direct involvement in the development of these plans or indirect involvement through the pain of taxes and, and being American citizens and developing this plan, I think that we pick on, on uh, something, we're picking on something that is the best system that we have in the world today. Just to follow up uh, briefly, um, Professor Thompson, the, the, I, I think I have had the uh, 
conception of this. You know, it's kind of the, the conventional wisdom that our listener Steve has had uh, that uh, antibiotics have been used um, to fatten up animals. Has, has that now been, you know, under these guidelines, is, ne- is that now in, in the past? Was it, antibiotics was it the case? don't fatten up animals. Okay. I mean, that's the first and foremost is that, you know, there are many people out there that have an underlying mission to, uh, you know, first and foremost, I'll just go back. Farmers and ranchers are a humble uh, group that really aren't ones to step out in front and, and tell their story. While there are many groups out there that have a, a vegan or, or a, a, some sort of agenda against food animal production that might, you know, use, use stories, whether it's on animal rights or whether it's on antibiotics or whether it's on food safety or, or different ways, to, to have a misconception of how antibiotics are used or, or, you know, why, how animals are raised. And, and no, antibiotics are not utilized to fatten up animals. There are no anabolic or metabolic properties of antibiotics. Otherwise, don't you think that there would be people misusing antibiotics as weightlifters and, and things to that nature? And, and it, they just don't have those types of, of, of uh, properties. So it's, it's been a, 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 a false story. It's, it's one that... that um, you know, when we use antibiotics, we use them to control uh, respiratory disease. We use them to to treat uh, things such as 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 hoof illnesses or or sorenesses. When we use antibiotics in animals, we're using them to treat animals that are sick uh, or or somewhere in the disease process of being sick. So I don't think that, uh, you know, while, while when we used to see maybe some of the things that were misleading were that there were some uh, uh, label claims for chlorotetracycline in the past that said uh, for the promotion of growth. But if you look at it scientifically or if you look at it as a farmer or rancher or veterinarian, the only way you would use an antibiotic and have it increase the performance of the animal is if you were treating subclinical disease. And what we mean by that is disease that we can't see. Uh, animals are like people. Some animals get a hangnail or some, you know, some people, some of your coworkers get a hangnail and they miss work for two weeks. Um, and somebody can have, you know, some dreaded virus and they show up every day to work as if nothing's wrong, and you're like, please go home, I don't want to catch that. Well, animals are the same way. And and a lot of times we can't see disease, and not a lot of times, but there are times when we can't see disease in animals because they're masking their, from the predator-prey uh, evolution of the predator-prey uh, uh, system over the years, that the weak animals that show, the animals that show weakness are the ones that are preyed upon. So sometimes we, since our animals can't talk and they have this predator-prey relationship, uh, we can't see the disease because they're masking it to make sure that, that... And so if there was a case that, I guess, if, if there was a case that antibiotics might improve growth performances if an animal that we can't tell is sick consumes it or, or, or is treated with one, that might improve the performance. But... I think to just say, hey, we have used antibiotics to fatten animals up is just a, is a very, very dangerous and, and false statement. Let me turn to uh, Matt Mulvey, uh, who's, uh, again, professor, Department of uh, Pathology, University of uh, Utah, joins us from KCPW. Um, I, I wonder how you parse this out, I guess, uh, antibiotic use, whether in humans or animals, uh, has good uh, good consequences. There's a reason they're there, but there's there's a danger there as well. Um, you know, uh, development of superbugs. It's it's an arms race, right? With uh, with antibiotics versus the uh, you know the microbes. Uh, it it is absolutely an arms race. I, I think that's a a very good analogy. It's, it's a common one, and I I think it holds up well. Uh, 
I mean, j just to comment on, on some of the, the, the things noted um, just a moment ago, I, I, uh, I, I have a couple of questions, actually. I was, uh, with 70% of antibiotics in the United States being used in farm animals, uh, the, it, it's a little bit hard to, to rationalize that with the use of them on animals only for, for treating sickness. I, w I was curious how much um, is used prophylactically uh, prior to, to seeing actual uh, symptomology in the animals. I was wondering if I could get a comment yeah, on that. Uh, uh, yes, uh, Professor Thompson, I was wondering that as yeah. well. What uh, what's your what would you say on that? Right. Well, we have the term. It's not prophylactically. Um, we have the term called metaphylactically, and the difference between prophylaxis and metaphylaxis. Prophylaxis would be before an animal gets a disease or the prevention of disease. Again, when we get into some of these. Uh, treatments, and, and you've seen it in human medicine too, where maybe we have a group of people in a, in a, in a dormitory or, or in, a, in a system that are exposed to a disease, and some of them are sick and some of them we don't know where they're at in the process. You have to back up and understand the disease process of, of beef cattle and, and many different uh, animals and and so when we use the term metaphylaxis, that means we have some animals that are seriously ill, some animals that are in the at different and and animals that are in different stages of the disease process, and this is uh, prescribed on a pen by pen basis. This is not something that is just fed uh, nilly willy uh, across the the uh, animal industry or the swine or poultry or, or uh, uh, beef industry. When we do see, the only thing that we do feed, and, and when you look at the 70% number uh, that, that is touted out there, at least on the, the beef cattle side of things, the, the antibiotic that, is, that pops up that we're feeding consistently uh, to feedlot animals is called Tylen or Tylosin. And I would say that that sitting, I think it's eighty to ninety percent of the the antibiotics that are fed to cattle in a metaphylactic uh, approach would come from tylosin and and chlorotetracycline that we use for the prevention of liver abscesses. Uh, Matt Mulvey, what uh, so it got your response there? What uh, what what's what what are your thoughts? So. I, I imagine that uh, the farm industry, just like like uh, the human health industry, has faced the same challenges, and that there's a a lot of controversy as to when and how much and how long to use antibiotics. Uh, this is a whole issue of of stewardship when when to uh, appropriately use a drug. Uh, Part of this comes down to being able to discern very rapidly if an individual has a particular type of infection due to a, a bacteria that would actually benefit from the use of an antibiotic. Um, there is a whole lot of pressure in, in hospitals, uh, patients coming into ICU or just, just visiting a, a, an outpatient clinic or your, your family doctor. Uh, if you're feeling down, you you want your doctor to do something quite rapidly, and and oftentimes um, they hand out antibiotics uh, without um, as much uh, per, perhaps uh, as much care as they should. And this, as you said, does does lead to um, uh, problems down the road. You you can wipe out good bacteria uh, within your intestinal tract as well as other sites in your body. This provides a um, an opportunity opens up niches for for uh, other bacteria that happen to be able to survive just by the sheer chance of of picking up the right genes at the right time. They they can survive. This is a process of natural selection, expand, and in some cases cause disease. Um, I, uh, you, you know, with, with respect to the the animal industry, I, I I'm a basic scientist. I don't work a lot with. Uh, with cattle and all that, but we, we do know in, in mice, for example, and this has been noted since 
shortly after the introduction of antibiotics, the, the antibiotic treatment can lead to, to pretty dramatic alterations in, in the physiology of, of animals, of mice in particular. And, and I think this was also noted in, in uh, cattle in the 1950s, that you do see um, um, more rapid development. And, and Dr. Thompson can, 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 can comment on this. Um, uh, you see this with chicken and and fish. I, I don't know about the aquaculture industry. How uh, I believe there's a lot of antibiotics used there as well. Um, I I I don't um, I I do agree with Dr. Thompson that there is no one industry, no one um, subset of society that deserves all the blame for this incredibly um, rapid and and. Truly scary uh, amplification of antibiotic resistance and superbugs that has emerged just within the past ten years, ten to twenty years. Um, there, are, there's lots of blame to go around, uh, from clinicians treating human patients, from um, uh, the the agricultural industry, um, as well as uh, there, there's even uh, some good evidence that the. The pollution, just uh, the the delivery of heavy metals into the environment, for example, a lot of the the mechanisms by which bacteria uh, gain resistance to antibiotics, uh, for example, pumps that can pump out um, certain drugs that are delivered, and um, are also important for for uh, pumping out heavy metals that, uh, such as lead or, or arsenic, for example. And you can find these in, in mines and elsewhere. And, and there are studies showing that you see increased amplification and increased frequency of antibiotic resistance within heavily polluted environments. Uh, my point with this is that, that, um, that there, there is no bad guy in all of this. I, I, it's just the way society has evolved. I think uh, the bacteria, um, they, they have the numbers on their side. I mean, there's... 10 to the 30th, that's 10 with 30 zeros behind it, bacteria on this planet. It's a, a biomass greater than uh, all plants and uh, humans and animals combined. And um, just by chance, every once in a while you get a bug that's resistant. And, and we, and our, the way we run our society nowadays, are providing more and more opportunities for these rare antibiotic-resistant bacteria to, to, to emerge and to spread. Um, this goes everywhere from what we've been talking about, uh, antibiotic use and misuse in, in various industries and, and in human health, um, as well as something as simple as air travel, providing a, a rapid means for these bugs to, to, to move across the planet quite rapidly. Um, let me uh, let me turn to Jessica Brown here. We'll go to a break shortly, but uh, I want to, um, I guess my question is, how worried should we be? We hear about these, uh, you know, superbugs, uh, antibiotic-resistant uh, bugs, and it is an arms race. Um, these are, you know, in a way, wonder drugs, antibiotics. You, you go to old cemeteries, and you see, you know, depressing numbers of children who died because we didn't have these drugs, and many lives saved. Um, but now with the rise of some uh, bugs that are resistant to antibiotics, uh, how... How worried should we be? Quite frankly, I think we should be quite worried. Um, these drugs are difficult to develop, and the bacteria will basically always be ahead of us just because there are so many of them. Um, these, To elaborate a little bit on one of Matt's points, antibiotic use is really a societal... It, antibiotics are considered a societal drug, and antibiotic use is something that basically we need to coordinate with the entire world about because... Um, use of a particular drug in another country will affect resistance patterns in our country. And this happens because bugs can spread so quickly due to air travel. Um, but it, And this means that really we need to coordinate. And so the WHO recently released a list where they classified antibiotics and they classified um, uh, the top level as those that we really need to preserve for emergency situations, then a medium level of things that can be used for common resistances, and then a lower level for standard use. And what this means is that not only 
do we need to coordinate worldwide on which antibiotics we're using when, when under what circumstances. But it also means that for the drug companies that develop these really critical antibiotics, it costs them a lot of money to do so, but we're basically saying they shouldn't be allowed to use them except in emergency situations, which means that we as a society need to get together, decide how much that's worth to us, and really compensate them for the cost of development, just because we do need these drugs. They cost around $800,000, $800 to a billion dollars to develop, and sometimes even more. Um, but then we're saying that we need them only for emergencies, and they can't be used very frequently. So I think this is a conversation that we really need to be have at, need to have. Um, and the World Health Organization and the CDC have been great in taking the leadership role in this conversation. But it's something that the entire world really needs to coordinate on. Let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, we'll have more on this important discussion. And uh, by the way, uh, uh, researchers we're talking with here um, on the program from University of Utah are working on how better to match um, antibiotics uh, pairing drugs synergistically. We'll get into talking about that. We'll get uh, more from the uh, uh, meat production side from uh, Dan Thompson, who is Jones Professor of Production Medicine and Epidemiology at Kansas State University. We're talking with Matt Mulvey, who's a professor in the Department of Pathology at uh, Utah State or U- University of Utah, and Jessica Brown, Assistant Professor in that same department, Department of Pathology. You can join this conversation if you'd like to email uh, upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, or you can call us 800-826-1495. More following this break. This is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. Let's get this one right. The group leader called out to her team who was building a complex custom demise. Then she corrected herself. She said, let's get this one righter. Awkward language aside, people who work continuous improvement, lean manufacturing, or enterprise excellence know that every product and every process can be made better. Nothing is ever perfect. They are comfortable with the permanent question, how can I make that better? If you cannot see ways to improve your product or service, ask your customer. If they don't tell you, your competitor might. But by then it might be too late and you'll be out of the game. The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU Shingo MBA program at the John M. Huntsman School of Business, a 15-month graduate degree for executives giving knowledge and skills to leverage the principles and tools of lean continuous improvement. Huntsman.usu.edu. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We're talking about uh, the use of antibiotics in uh, meat production, and we're talking about antibiotics in general, both antibiotic use in the uh, food industry and uh, when you go to the doctor. Um, and uh, what's the future in this arms race between antibiotics and uh, and the, the microbes that uh, some of the which can kill us. Um, we are uh, talking about this with uh, several experts. Dan Thompson is Jones Professor of Production Medicine and Epidemiology at Kansas State University. Matt Mulvey is Professor in the Department of Pathology at uh, Utah uh, University of Utah. And uh, Jessica Brown is Assistant Professor in that Department of Pathology as well. You can join this conversation at 800-826-1495, or you can reach us to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. I want to start this uh, segment with... With, uh, Professor Thompson again, um, there there is a labeling process, right? You can you can buy um, non antibiotic meat. What what's the um, what are the rules there? Yeah, I think that I wanted to go back to a couple of the comments. And first of all, we all understand that that when we use antibiotics, there's we we create antibiotic resistance in bacteria. And when we use pesticides, we create pesticide resistance. When we use uh, different things and different technologies, we we create that. Um, As noted, there are many drugs that are reserved only for the use in human medicine. They're not utilized in animal uh, production, as the ones that Dr. Brown mentioned. And I'm glad she brought that up because we do not use those antibiotics. And there are some shared class antibiotics. But the ones that she talks about as far as ones that are reserved only for human medicine are not utilized in food animal production. The other thing is, as a farmer and rancher, I don't want to treat my animals That means that, that with an antibiotic because that means they're sick. 
I do everything I can to prevent my animals from from getting sick, and and so uh, it's a failure to me when we use antibiotics. Um, no different than a mom uh, letting her child play soccer on a rainy, snowy day with a runny nose um, is a failure in 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 parenting that probably could lead to a secondary bacterial infection. Um, the number one cause of antibiotic resistance in humans comes from other humans. And, and we need to make sure that we understand that because to get an antibiotic resistant problem or an antibiotic resistant bacteria from an, an animal to a human in the U.S., first of all, that, that, that would have to be the transfer of something such as E. coli or salmonella. And we know how few of salmonella or E. coli infections that, that we are, are seeing. Um, and and through, so when you think about antibiotic resistance coming from a food animal to to uh, a human, we're really concerned about the the food safety aspect or a foodborne pathogen such as E. coli or, or Salmonella. If you do get E. coli, we don't use antibiotics to treat you because if you do uh, treat someone that has an E. coli infection, uh, there can be some deleterious effects on on your your kidneys. So what I want to back up is this creation of the superbug. And when we use that term, it creates a lot of fear. And and one thing I want people to understand is how safe our food supply is and how many people are going to work today uh, to make sure that we have that safe, wholesome food supply from food animals that's, that's affordable in this, this country to for people who who are on snap coupons to to restaurants and and to to feeding people of all social economic strata and and that creation of the superbug if you talk to the cdc which we had a a a, a seminar at emory university's medical school three years ago the number one place for a superbug to develop from a food animal to a human would be in the peri-urban areas or the slums of developing countries where people, where there are no veterinarians, countries that have no FDA, no USDA, no inspection service, no approval process, no labeling process, and, and no oversight by veterinary professions. And, and, and it's where people live with the animals in these slums or peri-urban areas that, that they eventually consume. If you come back over to the United States or to a first world country and you look at, at where people live with animals, you know, probably our number one concern of antibiotic resistance going from animals to humans should probably be with our pets, not with the food animals. And yet I don't see people uh, addressing that. I don't see people talking about that. Um, but if I put a... a, a puppy with red itchy tummy on on cephalexin and send it home and it drinks out of the toilet and grooms itself and then licks your two-year-old on the mouth i think there's a lot higher or direct transfer of antibiotic resistant bacteria than something that we have a veterinary client patient relationship we have a safety we have a withdrawal system uh we have a fda approval of antibiotics, we have USDA anti-mortem and post-mortem inspection, and then every tote of beef that comes out of a packing plant is tested for microbes to make sure that there are no, there are no foodborne pathogens in that. And, and so when you take a look at, and then when it gets to the restaurant or gets to the grocery store, there's another whole set of regulations and inspections and audits that we go through to make sure that that foodborne pathogen is not transferred directly or inadvertently from an employee. So, I mean, when, when we think about this, and, and then lastly on the antibiotic substitutes, you know, on the natural programs, two things. One, when we substitute zinc or copper or different trace minerals or even lactobacillus, when we look at probiotics, we have found that, that we will increase antibiotic resistance with non-antibiotic products. With probiotics, some of the better lactobacillus and bifidobacteria that are used as probiotics, uh, whether it's to feed to animals or to feed to humans, um, some of the best uh, probiotics are extremely resistant to antibiotics. Otherwise, you know, I mean, and so they have the ability to donate their DNA or RNA to some of our, our pathogenic bacteria. So I think that, that, you know, one of the 
one of the old boys told me that for every complex problem, there's a simple answer, and it's wrong. And I respect very much the, the care and concern of my other two uh, people here on this. this uh, it's a very serious issue, uh, antibiotic resistance. Um, but, but uh, you know, and we're all going to have to come together and get on the same page to, to answer the questions. But I think that, that spending a, a huge amount of time and, and just uh, in the food animal sector is not going to get us to the point in time on this globe that we need to, to be looking for the real answers. Let me turn uh, next to, uh, to Professor Mulvey. So uh, based on some of the, that that uh, Professor Thompson was, was saying, it's, uh, it, it is, I think we all agree, it's uh, wherever antibiotics are, are used, um, you know, there, there's a potential for development of uh, antibiotic-resistant uh, microbes. Where, where, do you, where do you spend your time worrying with, about where this is coming from? Uh, so, so I actually work um, with E. coli pathogens. Um, so uh, Dr. Thompson mentioned that the antibiotics are usually not used to treat E. coli. I, I should clarify, he's referring to a very specific type of E. coli. E. coli are, are quite a broad uh, um, spectrum of, of strains, and the one he's referring to are, are uh, an intestinal E. coli pathogen that you can get from eating contaminated food occasionally. Um, you don't treat with antibiotics because that causes these bacteria to release a, a toxin that will, will then uh, target and shut down your kidneys. But with respect to other E. coli strains, they, they are incredibly problematic and in, in terms of uh, antibiotic resistance. So these are the major causes of both bloodstream infections in humans as well as um, as well as urinary tract infections, which they're probably most notorious for. Um, and resistance among these bugs is, is incredible. Uh, about maybe uh, in, the, in the late 2000s, uh, 2009 or so, there were, we did a, a very informal survey of the types of uh, resistance we see in E. coli pathogens at the University of Utah hospitals. And we saw maybe about 3% of the bacteria were multidrug resistant. Just a couple of years ago, we did, an, again, another uh, study similar to this. And the number of multidrug resistant, multi-antibiotic resistant bacteria was close to 33% at this point. That's a huge increase in a very short time. Um, many of these strains, uh, just to hit the point that Dr. Thomas uh, brought up, that these multi-drug resistant strains, he's absolutely right, are originating in, in almost all cases from third world countries where there is a, um, a huge problem in the uh, wholesale unregulated use of antibiotics. There's also a lot of uh, um, unregulated uh, uh, pollution going on that all of these can drive the, the genesis of these multi-drug resistant uh, multi-antibiotic-resistant bacteria. So you can actually follow some of these E. coli strains. They they arrive in uh, they they arise in uh, in Asia, China, India. Uh, you can follow them migrate through um, uh, airline traffic pathways, and and in some cases, even there are studies in the United States showing the the transmission and the movement of multidrug-resistant bacteria by food distribution networks, so trucking networks along highways. Um, so there certainly is a spread of, of multidrug-resistant bacteria by human activities, including travel, including food distribution networks. This is not to say that the, the cause is um, the food industry solely. As I mentioned earlier, and as Jessica hinted at, this is a, a a big problem with lots of moving pieces, and and the food industry use of antibiotics in the food industry is one of those pieces. Uh, misuse, uh, uh, abuse of antibiotics in in human health, and and uh, many other um, uh, situations in which antibiotics are misused uh, come into play. I, I did want to address one more issue that that was brought up, and that's the um, even though. We, we see a, almost a, a sequestration of the types of antibiotics used in animals versus humans. There still can be problems because of the nature of, by which antibiotic resistance is acquired by bacteria. So bacteria are really, really good at exchanging 
pieces of genetic information, pieces of their DNA. And it's some of these pieces of DNA, uh, which can be carried on, on mobile um, genetic elements, little circular pieces of DNA called plasmids, um, is, is one way in which antibiotic resistance genes are often transferred between bacteria. And this can, is actually increased in, in uh, this transfer of DNA is increased, for example, in the human gut. It's about 25 times higher than what you see in soil, for example, or in the environment. Uh, you see increases in, in polluted environments, et cetera, where, where you see greater exchange of genetic information. The problem is, is that um, these plasmids, these pieces of DNA, can carry resistance not only to one antibiotic. They can carry resistance to many different types of antibiotics. So, for example, if you use an antibiotic in, in a farm animal that selects for resistance, allows for a bug that has resistance to, say, say um, tetracycline or something like that, if that bug is also resistant to, to um, other antibiotics, such as ciprofloxacin or, or other things, you're going to not only amplify a bacteria that's resistant to tetracycline, but you're also going to see coordinate amplification of ciprofloxacin. So, so even though you're using one antibiotic, you can select for resistance against other antibiotics. And this is one way it's believed that you end up with these so-called superbugs. And and I do realize that's a a, a fear term. I, I don't think it should be used um, to denigrate a, a particular um, no. Um, part of our society, agricultural or, or otherwise. Um, but I do think it is appropriate. These, these bugs are truly scary. I mean, there, there are bugs that we see in my lab that are resistant to record numbers of antibiotics, and not only record numbers, but, but high, high levels. I mean, incredible levels of antibiotics that would normally, um, you know, should kill the bugs, but they're able to survive. So it, it's a problem. Let me turn next uh, to uh, to uh, Jessica Brown, who again is assistant professor in Department of Pathology at uh, University of Utah, and we have with us as well Dan Thompson, Jones Professor of Production Medicine and Epidemiology at Kansas State University. You just heard from Matt Mulvey, professor in the Department of Pathology, University of Utah. Uh, Matt Mulvey and Jessica Brown are joining us from the studios of KCPW in Salt Lake City. Our uh, thanks to good folks at KCPW. Um, so, uh, Jessica Brown, I want to uh, make sure before we uh, end the conversation um, that uh, we talk a little bit about uh, research going on there. You're involved, I think Professor Mulvey is as well, with um, pairing pairing up uh, uh, drugs, antibiotics, uh, a new way, to some synergies to maybe uh, help with this uh, arms race. Thank you. So. I mentioned earlier that one potential problem in managing antibiotics is that these, like any drug, is, are expensive to develop. But then once we develop them, we need to save um, the best antibiotics for the emergency situations. Um, and so one way people have taken to address this potential problem is what's called drug repurposing, where we take drugs that are already approved by the FDA for other diseases and see whether they could potentially work as antibiotics. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Mm. Um, so uh, we take drugs that have already been approved to see if they can uh, work as antibiotics. And what we're particularly interested in doing is trying to find drugs that interact with known antibiotics to amplify each other's activity. So a study that my lab did with, um, in collaboration with Matt's lab was that we took a very common drug called trimethoprim, which is normally c combined with a class of drugs called sulfonamides. And this, for a long time, has been the standard of care for treatment of urinary tract infections. Um, it's been used prophylactically as well to give to patients who are prone to urinary tract infections. But the problem is that these days, this combination is now almost useless due to widespread resistance. We but what we wanted to do was identify something else that could also interact with these drugs to amplify their, each other's their activity and rescue this um, amplified activity and see if we could basically repurpose an already approved drug for this use. Historically, this has been a challenge because if you're just combining drugs, then the number of combinations becomes a factorial. So if you have a collection of a thousand molecules in order to see how many of them interact with each other, you'd have to test a thousand drugs times a thousand drugs, and it becomes very difficult. So we developed a way to do this very efficiently, and 
when we tested this with the drug trimethoprim and, and, and sulfonamides, we identified a third drug that could amplify the activity of either trimethoprim or the sulfonamide drugs. And this was the antiviral drug AZT, which has historically been used to treat AIDS. We then found that uh, we figured out why these two drugs interacted. And once we figured that out, we were then able to design additional combinations where not only we took, did we take AZT and use its antibiotic activity, but we found a drug that can sub that performs the same effect as trimethoprim, but doesn't target the same protein that trimethoprim targets. So basically, the downstream effect is the same, but the target is different. And because antibiotic resistance usually affects the drug's target, we were able to bypass the trimethoprim resistance that is so common in E. coli strains these days with our newly designed combination. So we've been taking we've, which means that we can now rationally design drug combinations to bypass antibiotic resistance. So this is just one antibiotic that we've been able to do this for. We're attempting to scale up our work and try this for other antibiotics. But drug repurposing uh, has been, but the drugs that we use can be repurposed. They're already approved for FD, by the FDA. Um, and so hopefully think methods like this and some other groups are doing similar things um, for other drugs and other diseases can be used to try to expand our antibiotic available relatively quickly. That's, uh, that does provide some some hope, the good work uh, going on there. We just have uh, about uh, seven minutes left. Uh, I want to do a round of uh, just two minutes each, uh, summing up. So I'll, I'll uh, start uh, with uh, Dan Thompson. Uh, what would you say at the, the end of the conversation here? Well, first of all, I want to thank you all for having me on, and I want to thank uh, the other two faculty members that were on here. I'm, I'm very thankful for the research that they're doing. Um, I have four daughters, and as children, the three of the four daughters suffered from uh, from uh, ureter uh, reflux, and they were all three put on years of amoxicillin to prevent urinary tract infections. And so every night we treated all three of them. Uh, so thank you for the research that you're doing. I have a very personal connection with with what you are are battling, and and I'm thankful. Um, you know, I think at the end of the day, it gets back to does use equal resistance, and and what we really have to get down to the to the to the at least on my end of things. You know, I think one of the things that we have to understand is that we've combined a lot of different topics today during today's show. Mine was specific to foodborne pathogens, antibiotic usage in food animals, um, and and potential antibiotic resistance. And I think the one thing that 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 uh, my my co-hosts or co co co-speakers today we understand is that we do have a tremendous system here in the U.S. We still have the human to human interaction, the human to animal interaction, and we have to eat. And and working together to to make it as safe as possible, and being ahead of the curve if we can be. But also looking to our our third world or developing nations to help provide them the infrastructure in this battle is going to be imperative, and and I think we all have to be on the same page. I'd love to come out to Utah and visit y'all's lab. It sounds like uh, some some tremendous work being done, and and thanks for for bringing up this important topic. Uh, Matt Mulvey, next, just a couple of minutes. Okay. Um, well. I'd like to, to thank you also once again for, for having me on. And um, just to, uh, to reciprocate, I'd like to thank Dr. Thompson. I, I do enjoy eating healthy animals, and so I appreciate the work that he does. I, I do um, agree with all the points he made that, that this is not a simple problem. This is something that needs to be coordinated worldwide. Um, we, we need to to use antibiotics more more effectively, more um, um, w with more um, thought, uh, and w the biggest problem with this is that the bugs are always going to evolve, no matter what we throw at them. They're going to gain resistance. I, I think this uh, reason for this reason, we we really need to maintain and try to keep ahead of the curve by by continuing um, a, a plug basic research here. Uh, uh, research into the development of new um, antibiotics and new therapeutic approaches. Um, there, it, it was mentioned uh, uh, 
prophylactic uh, uh, use of, of um, antibiotics could be used more wisely. Uh, there, there's the use of probiotics, and uh, these are basically bacteria or other uh, microbes that could be used to, to prevent colonization by m more uh, problematic organisms uh, that can cause disease. I, I think there's a whole slew of, of research avenues that, that could be pursued in, in order to head off this um, coming problem of, of antibiotic resistance. There, there's, um, it is something I, I think we should all be scared about. I mean, we, we don't want to go back to the days where we, you know, a, a simple operation becomes life-threatening, getting your, your tooth pulled be, becomes a problem. Um, and, and for that, we need antibiotics. I, I don't think there's a way around us not using antibiotics in the modern world. We depend on it for, for a healthy food uh, um, as, as well as our, our own health. So um, I, I appreciate the, the comments that, the, that have been made here. And I Okay, uh, and we'll give the last word to Jessica Brown, just about a minute. Great. Um, thank you for having us, and thank you also to Dr. Thompson. I really want to um, support his point that we have a remarkably safe food system. And so I don't want the listeners to take away from this show that, that we're worried about pathogens and resistance pathogens coming from our food supply. Um, the work of the FDA as well as the CDC has set up a remarkable surveillance system in this country. Um, and that's taxpayer supported. So we know what bugs are out there. And this unfortunately means that we know what we need to worry about, but it at least also means that we can we know where we need to direct our resources. And so I think what frightens me about about these drug resistant bugs is that within the past couple of decades we're seeing them not just confined to hospitalized patients, but now out in the community. Um, and microbial communities function on a very wide scale. So we we heard a lot recently about the human microbiome, and so we know that we have bacteria and fungi and other microbes in our body, on our body, and all around us. This includes on our pets as well. And so just by interacting with things that we interact in everyday life, we're exposed to new bacteria. This doesn't mean we're dirty. Um, these are just natural things, and they're actually necessary for our own health. But that means that as we're using more and more antibiotics in healthcare settings and in other ways, that these drug-resistant bacteria are being selected for, and then we're constantly being exposed to them. And so as they become more and more common, they're spreading. Our ex excellent surveillance systems are telling us what's out there, and we need to really coordinate our responses to these. We will uh, leave it there. We've uh, been talking with Jessica Brown. You heard from her right there, assistant professor in the Department of Pathology at the University of Utah Health. Thank you so much. Uh, we've also been talking with Matt Mulvey, professor in the Department of Pathology, University of Utah Health. Uh, thank you to you as well. Thank you. And uh, Dan Thompson has joined us by phone. He's Jones Professor of Production, Medicine, and Epidemiology at Kansas State University. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, should point out again, our thanks to KCBW. Uh, professors uh, Mulvey and Brown have joined us from KCBW Studios in Salt Lake City. And uh, thanks uh, for the discussion. And uh, keep those comments coming to upraccess at gmail.com. Uh, tomorrow should be an interesting discussion. We're going to open the phone lines and email and uh, Twitter for your response to the events, uh, recent events in Charlottesville, Virginia. I'll have with me uh, uh, Utah State University uh, Communications Professor Jason Gilmore. We'll have other guests as well. Uh, we'll be talking about free speech, talking about uh, contextualizing racism in America. We'll, of course, uh, talk about the president's comments, shifting comments on this issue, and uh, hope to get your comments as well. That's the program tomorrow. Thanks for listening today. I'm Christy Aachen, one of the Access Utah producers for Utah Public Radio. We produce extraordinary shows for our UPR community, following fascinating ideas, important issues, and compelling stories. Access Utah is also a program that listens to you. If you have comments, story ideas, we'd love to hear them. Please email us at upraccess at gmail.com. You can also share ideas with us on social media. Follow and post on our Access Utah Facebook and Twitter page. Just be sure to include the hashtag IAMUPR.